Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And, and Eric, you may recall that a decade or two ago, I guess a couple of decades ago, my fellow Brits' favourite thing to do at a boxing event was sing a fighter's name to the tune of Winter Wonderland. Mm, yes. Um, but now it's Seven Nation Army. And, and hearing... Tyson Fury do an awkward solo oh Derek Chisora into the microphone on Saturday. Uh, forgive me for saying it, by the way, not chanting it. I, I have a sore throat. That's my excuse today. Okay. Um, it occurred to me that some names, you know, have just the right number of syllables for the Seven Nation Army chant, and some do not. Eric, since you do not have a sore throat, would you care to chant your name and my name so we can see which works better? <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, sure. Let's see. I'll, I'll do mine first. Uh, Eric Raskin. Yeah. Wait, let me uh, let me let me try. Uh, Eric Raskin. Uh, little so little better so if I add do. a syllable, yeah. Yeah. you know. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. kind of a cheat. All right, let me try yours. Uh, Kieran Mulvaney. Oh, Kieran Mulvaney. Yeah, this is good. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's strong. You have a strong uh, Seven Nation Army name there, Kieran. I have to admit. Yep, yep, that was the plan from the very beginning. <laughs> you you were setting me up. You knew what I was walking into, huh? <laughs> yeah, what can I say? You know, look, you either have it or you don't. And I have it, and you don't. But never mind, you know, try not to be too jealous about that. Oh, Kieran Mulvaney. I can't stop. Oh, Kieran Mulvaney. It's going to be an interesting podcast. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll stop, but hopefully I've succeeded in already getting it stuck in every listener's head. Yes, there were some very, very irritated commuters this morning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, coming up on this edition of the podcast, the great Al Bernstein joins us to discuss the Showtime Championship boxing card coming up in two weeks, plus 2022 highlights and lowlights. I think we've just had one of those. 2023 <laughs> wishes and the Hall of Fame. Uh, Eric and I test each other. It's my turn to see if he can figure out which fight I'm thinking of in our new segment, The Fight Game. Well, he hits me with a top five challenge. We will look ahead to big fights next weekend for Terence Crawford and Tiafimo Lopez. We will recap Juan Francisco Estrada's narrow win over Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez in the third act of their trilogy. But first, to London, where on Saturday night, Tyson Fury retained his lineal heavyweight championship with a 10th round stoppage of Derek Chisora that was unnecessary and Deeply uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, uh, we said from the beginning that this fight was a pointless exercise, given Fury already had two wins over Chisora, neither of them close or controversial or anything. Since then, as Fury has ascended to the top of the heavyweight mountain, Chisora has gone 13-7 and seven and was 1-3 in his last four fights prior to entering the ring on Saturday. So our expectations were low. But I'm not sure even we predicted events would unfold quite as terribly as they did. From the very beginning, Fury was comfortably in control and appeared to be carrying Chisora, walking away and dropping his hands on several occasions when he appeared to have his man hurt. The fight, if you can call it a fight, uh, entered into a lull in the middle rounds as Fury appeared to ease off a little. But then he turned up his offense a bit more once again, and honestly, from about the seventh round on, Either yeah. the referee or the corner could have easily stopped it. At any point, Chisora had no hope of winning. Instead, everyone allowed it to continue, with Chisora barely able to mount any offense but taking a beating until finally the referee stopped it at 251 of the 10th, with Chisora having taken far more punishment than was necessary. Kieran, let's leave the discussion of this fight loose and open. No specific questions, just the floor is yours to give your thoughts on what we saw. I hated it. I absolutely hated all of it. It made me feel a little ill. Um, it was one of those fights that made me deeply question why I continue to be in any way involved in this sport. And I was thinking of Margaret coming on the pod the other mm. week and saying that she just doesn't really like to watch boxing anymore. And, I, and there were times where I sat there wondering how long it would be before I was at that same place. Um, but first things first, I understand why Fury took the fight. He has concluded following his cup of coffee retirement that he needs to keep busy and keep fighting to stay sane. Fair enough. He wanted some work. Fair enough. He's not the first to do that. There is a long history of champions taking tune-up fights against overmatched opponents. Um, 60,000 fans showed up to watch it, yeah. in cold weather even, outdoors. So no matter what folks like you or I said about it beforehand, there was a market for it. Um, and I doubt that too many of those who went had very high expectations that Chisora was going to pull off the upset. Chisora willingly signed on for the opportunity, refused to quit, and he earned a couple million dollars. Um, 
But unfortunately, he may need that money yeah. in later life, I'm afraid. Um, a couple of fights ago, and I think it was the rematch with Joseph Parker, or maybe it was the bout with Usyk, I don't remember. We commented then on how much Chisora was starting to get hit very cleanly. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it was that Parker rematch. It was, was really? it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that this was a profession that we didn't really want to see him pursue for a long time, or, or even at all anymore. Look, Saturday night did nothing to ease those concerns. He's legendarily tough, but even so, at 38 years old, with his better days well behind him, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to Tesora, who showed tremendous gallantry and has had a career to be proud of, but he was basically a heavy bag for Fury in there. Mm. Um, I don't know for certain that Fury could have finished him off in the first four or five rounds, but it felt like that he wanted to. He possibly could have done. Um, whether he was easing up because he at times because he wanted the work, because he wanted the fight to go rounds, um, because he hurt his hand, which he mentioned afterward he had done at some point, or because he was trying to go easy on his mate, I don't know. But if it was the last of those, he was not doing Chisora any favors at all. No. Um, even if he was pulling his punches a little to land so many clean shots over a prolonged period like that will have likely done Chisora much more damage than a quick and violent stoppage. But you know what? Despite all of that, despite the unnecessary and one-sided nature of this bout, it might have been easy-ish to shrug it off as one of those nights distasteful, but not necessarily the worst thing in the world. A Chisora's corner shown the slightest inkling of humanity and competence. Yeah. Like you said, that fight went on for several rounds longer than it needed to. There was no way, like you said, that Chisora was going to win. He didn't even have a puncher's chance. He was just a brave man being beaten to a pulp, and nobody seemed remotely interested in doing what was best for him. It isn't the first late stoppage in a gross mismatch. It won't be the last but I absolutely hated it. It made me very uncomfortable. And honestly, that's beyond that. I don't have a lot to say. That's basically what I have to say about it there. So it made you think of Margaret Goodman. It made me think of Howard Cosell. If yeah. Howard Cosell were alive and calling fights, this might have been another Larry Holmes Tex Cobb situation yep. for him, causing him to walk away from boxing all over again. Uh, yeah, we've said that Chisora's chin is dangerously good, dangerous to him, uh, that, that he can absorb punishment far too well. And, you know, in terms of what problems you run into after your career is over, a lot of it is genetics and luck. So yep. so I don't know that he'll have health problems. I, I sure hope he doesn't. Um, but he bears very close watching because he has taken a ton of punishment over his 46 fights, especially since hitting his mid-30s. I guess it could have been worse. They could have let it go the full 12. Oh, At least they stopped yeah. it eventually. Um, but yeah, this fight just never should have happened in the first place. Nobody benefits from this, except financially. Yeah. Um, this doesn't help build up Fury, who, who doesn't need building up at this point anyway. It's dangerous for Chisora. It's a bad look for the sport. I guess it's good that it keeps Fury in the gym and motivated, but I also can't tell when he talks about needing the box to stay sane there's at least a 50-50 chance he's just saying that and trying to give reporters something to talk about. Um, It it may be true. It may not. Kind of the case with all things Tyson Fury. Whenever he says something, you just have no idea how to take it. He's a WWE wrestler, basically. Yes. um, And and I found his stare down with Usyk afterward kind of uncompelling for that very reason. It was wrestling shtick slash hype, but without the comedy that, say, The Rock brings to it. Um, So I I don't have much more to say about this either. It it was a paid sparring session. Um, I'll have more to say about the co-feature, which we'll get to next. But but, but this, it was a waste of everyone's time and a dangerous waste at that for Chisora. And I, I guess I'll just finish by saying... Bring on Fury Usyk. It is the only fight that matters for Fury right now. I don't want to hear talk about AJ. I don't want to hear talk about Wilder 4. And even Joe Joyce, he can wait. Boxing needs Fury Usyk next. Indeed. Uh, well, let's talk about that co-main then. Because um, there was plenty of controversy surrounding it as well, even though it unfolded very differently. Um, Kevin Lorena put Daniel Dubois down three times in the first round. Although the second and third knockdowns appeared to be Dubois almost voluntarily going down as he struggled to clear his senses and recover from rolling his ankle the first time he touched the canvas. But Lorena then stood off his foe in the second, which allowed Dubois to get his feet back under him. And in the third, uh, Dubois dropped Lorena with a right hand and then really started teeing off on him, rocking him again with an uppercut and landing a straight left as the bell rang. With the bell having rung to end the round and with Lorena slumped in the ropes, referee Howard Foster stopped the fight. So there's plenty to unpack there. You've already said there's plenty you want to say about it. So have at it, Eric. All right. I have some bones to pick here. And 
I'm going to bury the lead, which clearly should be Daniel Dubois coming off the canvas three Mm -hmm. times to win. I I will get to that. But I have to start with the two things that got under my skin. One of them is probably easy for everyone to predict. I hated the stoppage. Yeah. Uh, um, Howard Foster completely failed to use the rules and options at his disposal, and he ended the fight before it needed to be ended. And I know we just got done bitching about the Fury Chisora fight going on too long, so, you know, pick a lane, Raskin. But every situation is unique. This fight had nothing in common with Fury Chisora. The round was over. If Foster wanted to, he even could have called a knockdown since Mm -hmm. Lorena fell back and the ropes held him up. Now, I think I know what happened here. Foster had already made up his mind to jump in and stop at a fraction of a second before the bell rang. And, you know, I'll say, as as we've said before, this is a very tough job. You hold lives and livelihoods in your hands and you have to make split second decisions. But the best refs can make those decisions calmly and they can realize that the decision they were about to make just a second ago, the bell rang. And they can change their mind because they haven't waved their arms in the air yet to signal the end of the fight. They can decide, wait, the bell rang, the round is over, the fight shouldn't be stopped, let's send him back to his corner. And I know some people will counter that Dubois was probably going to stop him early in the fourth anyway. Probably. But nobody can say that for sure. Lorena had shown the ability to hurt Dubois and hurt him badly. Maybe after a minute to recover, he could have done it again. This was an incorrect stoppage in my view. It came after the round ended a more poised referee would have given Lorena a chance to recover. So that's my bone pick number one. Uh, Bone pick number two, a little more minor. It's the TV production team making an equally lousy decision on the fly. So they announce early in round one that after the round, Mark Kriegel is going to interview Tyson Fury in the locker room. Then the massive favorite Dubois gets knocked down and goes down again and goes down a third time. At any point in there, your producer or director should be deciding, let's stay here. This is major drama. We got to show Dubois' corner. We got to show replays of the knockdown. No, they go to Kriegel and Fury, and without working audio, no less. Uh, But, okay, that's not anyone's fault, necessarily. That's just a technical glitch. But I get that Kriegel is positioned there, and and Fury probably wants him out of the locker room quickly so he can finish preparing for his fight. So, okay, record the interview and, and show it after the next round. That was just an infuriatingly bad decision not to stick with the drama unfolding in Dubois, Lorena. Um, so those are my two bone picks. Now I'll quickly address the lead that I have buried. Uh, Dubois, he has some pretty big flaws. Uh, not great punch resistance, perhaps, although it was a temple shot that started it. So who yeah. knows? And he also seemed to want out for a moment there. Mm. Uh, I, I jotted in my notes during round two, is Dubois a total front runner? Um, but mm. He's not. He battled back. He dropped Lorena with a straight right hand through the guard with 30 seconds to go in the third, and he completed the comeback. It was an impressive comeback, and he showed a lot of heart. I'd still say his stock went down overall in this fight, but all credit to Dubois. Fighters don't lose a 10-6 round and win the fight very often, and he did that. Yeah. Yeah. On the one hand, I, I look at Dubois after that and, and, and think he looks way too vulnerable way too susceptible to a good shot to be truly competitive with the big beasts in the division. But against that, yeah, look, he showed real resilience mm-hmm. in climbing off that canvas, dealing with adversity and coming back to win. Um, I, I, I suspect that, like you said, it was a temple shot and he was just, I think his equilibrium was gone. He probably yep. barely knew where he was. And he seems like he hurt his ankle when he went down. Um, and he, when he was going down the second and third times, I'm sure was just not at all sure what, what on earth was going on. But right. When it came back to him coming back to win, yeah, he did. But Lorena and the referee and the timekeeper, who seemed to ring the bell a little early in round one, unless it was the on-screen timer that was off, um, all helped with that. But that said, you know, I'm like, as you reminded us last week, uh, Dubois is still very young. Um, right. And maybe this was just what he needed, right, to erase hmm. any lingering doubts he himself might have had about his own capacity to come back after the nature of that loss to Joe Joyce. Hmm. Um, maybe. Right. Maybe he knows now that, you know what, next time I'm in trouble, it's OK. I can I can make it through this. Um, but that said, you know, a couple of years ago before Joe Joyce, we were talking about Dubois being like the next big thing in the heavyweight right. division. It's kind of interesting to see how their two paths have changed. At the moment, I think the hype train is better off sort of just hanging out in the station a little bit for Daniel Dubois for a while. But he's still yeah. got plenty of time to, to work on what he needs to work on and, and see how far he can go. 
Yeah, that, that's an interesting point that maybe this is exactly what he needed for his self-belief. Uh, we'll 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 find out, I guess, over the next few fights. But maybe he did need to uh, go through a real trial by fire and win it and and prove something to himself. But I just if he has bad punch resistance, which, again, hard to know from a temple yeah. shot. But if, if that's the case, then no, no amount of self-belief yeah. is going to get him to the top. Exactly. Um, also on Saturday night, in front of a frenzied crowd in Glendale, Arizona, Juan Francisco Estrada made it two out of three against rival Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez with a majority decision win over 12 rounds in a super flyweight title bout. Scores were 114-114, 115-113, and 116-112. Estrada climbs to 44-3 and with 28 KOs, while Gonzalez falls to 51-4 and with 41 KOs. His only defeat's coming to Estrada and Srisaket. So wrong visai. Um, between the Fury card and this, I started to develop cold symptoms and feel really sick and <laughs> and sucked down plenty of NyQuil and was in and out of sleep all night. So I'm going to leave the heavy lifting on this one to you. Um, you asked last week if this third fight could be as good as their previous two contests and whether Estrada could be a Hall of Famer with a win. So was it? And is he? Well, so for the Dubois fight, I, I buried the lead myself. Uh, now you've kind of buried the lead, I think, with your questions. But you know, we'll we'll chalk it up as uh, the the exactly. the Nyquil talking here. Exactly. Um, but so I will answer your questions quickly and then get to what I think is the big story here. Was it as good as their previous two fights? No, I think this was the third best fight of the trilogy, but it was still damn good, especially down the stretch. Round twelve is a round of the year contender. This fight was an A. But their second fight was an A+. Um, and, and even the first fight was maybe a hair better than this one. Uh, as for the Hall of Fame, you were correct last week to say that Estrada should be in regardless. That he'd done enough, he would get our votes. But some voters might have viewed him as borderline. And so now with him officially leading 2-1 to one in a trilogy against a sure-shot Hall of Famer in Chocolatito, I would say he is now a lock for the Hall himself, I think. Um you know, th th this should put his resume over the top with mm -hmm. almost every voter. Uh, but OK, so now on to what I want to talk about most, the scoring, the bizarrely one sided commentary early and what I considered the shame bordering on almost tragic shame of Chocolatito having zero wins and two losses to show for these last two fights against Estrada. Mm. Nothing against Estrada. I admire him tremendously. He's a great fighter. Uh, I scored the first fight a draw. I thought Chocolatito deserved to win this one. It was close, certainly. It wasn't a robbery, just as their first fight mm -hmm. wasn't. But, man, what were the commentators watching the first half of this fight? And, and I'll name them. And, you know, I, I know them all. I get along with them all. This is not a personal attack. This is a professional attack, I guess. Um, Todd Grisham, Sergio Mora, Chris Mannix. My lord, there were rounds where you'd think they were watching Fury Chisora. They were painting such a one-sided picture of Estrada boxing so masterfully and Gonzalez being stuck in mud or something, and they weren't noticing that, you know what? In terms of punches landing, these rounds are all pretty close. We have a competitive fight going on here. Uh, and as it turns out, I guess a couple of the judges were seeing something similar. But still, the commentary... They weren't calling the fight. They were calling their narratives. Um, even if you scored most of those early rounds for Estrada, you can't be this fixated on wondering what the hell is wrong with Chocolatito when, you know, he's fighting okay. He's he's landing too. These are close rounds. Uh, I had it 7-5 for Chocolatito. I had him down 4-2 to two through 6, but then he won 5 of the last 6 on my card. But a lot of the rounds were close. I tallied it up. I had... Four rounds I gave to Chocolatito without hesitation, two for Estrada, and six that I thought were close enough to make mm. a case either way. So that means that 116-112 Estrada isn't impossible. I still think it's a bad card. Uh, a draw is fine. Anything in favor of Estrada doesn't reflect the fight that I saw. And it's just such a damn shame because especially the last two fights viewed together, Gonzalez deserved better yeah. than this. Yeah, he looked kind of flat and washed the first two rounds, but that was it. Just two rounds. Then he started kicking it into gear, and the next four were close. And then he really cranked it up a notch, and Estrada began to fade a bit. And I thought Chocolatito won the fight. Um, but I'll end on a positive note. It was an outstanding fight. The 12th round was absolutely spellbinding. And I don't know where 35-year-old Chocolatito found the energy to fight the way he did the last six rounds. 
It's amazing to think that, you know, he he talked afterwards, Chocolatito, that he, he'd think about whether to continue fighting. And if he does retire, like I said, he'll have a record of 51 and four. Mm-hmm. Only one of those defeats was clear. Right. Like, um, like I said, I'm, I'm not going to comment on the scoring for this one. I watched parts of it in too much of a fog, but right. I thought he won the other two that he officially lost as well. And only that that's Rissaket knockout was, was the clear loss. Yeah. Um, and that was, as we keep saying, five years ago, and we thought he was done. And yep. and the fact that he's able to even still be competitive with a guy like Juan Francisco Estrada, who's several years younger than him, is is remarkable. Really, I, I'd be pretty happy if Chocolatito was like, you know what, screw it, I've done enough, I'm 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 done. His legacy is very secure. He'll sail into the Hall of Fame, um, and Estrada will be right behind him. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree that this would be a great way to go out if Chocolatito wants to. He obviously still has plenty left to offer if he wants sure. to keep fighting, but. This would be a, a perfect note to end on, and he is 35 and has been in a lot of tough fights. Uh, this, I would be delighted if he decided to call it a career after this. All right, let's turn to this week's guest. And our run of Hall of Famers uh, continues this week as we welcome back a familiar voice, not just the listeners of the pod, but fans of boxing everywhere. Showtime Championship Boxing expert analyst Al Bernstein. Al, welcome back, and thanks for joining us again. Uh, nice to be with you guys. Always a pleasure to visit with you. Been a, yeah. been a few weeks. <laughs> it, it, it has been. <laughs> I, I was measuring it more in months, but it, you can also measure it in, in weeks. Either way, it's been too long, and we're glad you joined us again. Oh, it's, I'm glad to be here. So uh, coming up uh, two weeks from now, uh, we have the final Showtime card of the year. And mm-hmm. on paper, it's a very good one. The yeah. The main event sees lightweight action between two undefeated contenders, Michelle Rivera and Frank Martin. We've seen both guys on Showtime recently. How would you assess their ceilings, Al? And and how impressed are you just to see these two both deciding to take this risky fight at this stage of their careers? Yeah, back in the day, we saw this more often, didn't we? Uh, we don't see it quite as much now, although we have seen it uh, in the past. I mean, last this past year, uh, one of the perhaps the fight of the year was a fight just like this with um, Sebastian Fundora and Erickson Lubin, two men poised for world titles and had a lot at stake, and they fought each other. Uh, and it, it, though this is just not quite at that peak, it's very close um, with Rivera and Martin fighting each other. And I'm, I think it is admirable that they're fighting each other. Uh, we want to see that in boxing. And, and we cannot continue to penalize fighters if they lose a fight like this. Um, Of course, yes, they suffered a loss and maybe it sets them back, but we can't write them off. Um, And I, you know, I think they're two really good fighters and, uh, and whoever does win this fight certainly deserves a a title chance against somebody. In terms of just the the, the first part of the question that I I had asked about their ceilings in watching Ah, them to this point. Yeah. Has, has either one of them jumped out at you as, Ooh, boy, this guy looks like he could be a a future champion. They're they're both very good fighters and they're probably both still getting better. Uh, I think they're both still with an upward spiral. So that's why it's an apt question. What's their ceiling? Because they probably haven't reached their ceiling. They, you know, they can be better. The difference between the two fighters might be on paper. It looks like Martin's a little heavier of a puncher, Hmm. but we don't fight these things on paper, do we? So, you know, they may get in the ring and Rivera does have some pop for sure. Uh, you know, he might prove that his power is, is right there with Frank Martins. Um, they're both excellent fighters, uh, and I think both of them can be champions. There's no question about that. I think they're they, you know, they they both have uh some special qualities that means they could be champions. Um, and uh, you know, Martin, the lefty, Rivera the righty, and one uh a more a power punching aggressor, the other one a little bit more of a boxer puncher in Rivera, but still somebody that, you know, he will he will engage. Yeah. Um the co-main's a good crossroads bout. Um Jose Uskadagi, who is at one point slated to fight David Benavides, is instead taking on rising contender Vladimir Shiskin. Um Uskadagi hasn't had a meaningful win for a few years, but he's still on paper, again that phrase, a step up for Shiskin. If Shishkin were able to take care of Uskadagi. Does that mean he's a guy we really need to take seriously? Well, he certainly, that would certainly demonstrate 
he's a player in the division and and yeah would mean that he would move into some kind of contender status because as you point out Oscarigi has had some has had disappointments in uh, uh, recently and hasn't performed to the level we all thought he would i mean there was a time i'm sure you guys agree when it looked like Jose Oscarigi was what perhaps the next big thing in that weight division and had a championship and it looked like Man, he was a guy to be reckoned with. And, you know, it started going downhill in the plant fight, which he was favored to win. And then, uh, you know, after that, uh, suffering another loss. And so, you know, what makes this fight important, I think, is that two things are at stake. Shishkin, he wants to show he belongs at the top of the 168-pound division or near there. And Uskada, he simply wants a win to keep himself anywhere close to the upper echelon of it. So both fighters have something at stake, more probably for Uskadegi, and I think that adds to the drama of this. It's funny you bringing up the uh, Uskadegi plant fight and that Uskadegi was favored to win because I somewhat infamously, for our regular listeners, uh, placed a small wager on Uskadegi to win that fight and <laughs> told Caleb Plant afterward in person thinking it would be like a charming, humbling comment to note, <laughs> hey, I bet against you, you proved me wrong. Uh, and uh, he gave me some death stares and told me never to do that again. So <laughs> l- lesson learned, Al, don't tell a fighter that you, that you bet against him. I don't know if that's a lesson you've come across in your years on the beat. Well, you want to hear something funny? I've almost I've only bet on a few fights in my life. And I never bet on a fight I was calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I bet on Cooney and Holmes. And I bet on Jerry Cooney because uh, Gil Clancy, who was training Cooney, convinced me that Cooney could hurt him with the left hook, which he did in round one, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, it didn't work out well. And later, uh, I was tempted to tell George Foreman, the same as you, thinking it would be a funny moment. And I thought better of it uh, at the last moment. So now I can see by your experience that that would have been a huge mistake on my part. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> now so, I've learned something in hindsight from you. Right. And you didn't have to experience the death stare <laughs> that I experienced. Yes. There you go. Um, so th- this this card on December 17th, this is a home game for you. It's taking place yes. at the Cosmopolitan. It's in Minnesota. It, right. And then they, and they, and they moved it to, to the Cosmopolitan in, in mm-hmm. Las Vegas. Right. OK, so. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious, uh, after all these years of being ringside and, and calling fights, I mean, the Cosmopolitan is a, is a nice little venue. I'm curious, yeah. uh, do you have any favorite locations that, that you've called fights at over the years? Oh, boy, that's a good. Well, of course, one of the it's funny. I, I'm going to mention a place, even though it goes against my general. I don't like boxing outdoors. I, I'm not an outdoor boxing guy. Mm-hmm. I think. It, to me, it's like what Woody Hayes used to say about the forward pass, right? Three things can happen and two of them are bad, right? So why would I want to do that? Well, you know, I feel like boxing outdoors is like that. You know, bad things can happen with the weather, with the wind, with whatever. Um, but two of the, my favorite places, one was the the outdoor arena at Caesars Palace outside that we did all the great fights that with Hagler Hearns, Hagler Leonard, all those great fights. There was something magical about that. Uh, and another outdoor one at Carson, uh, yeah. where so many great fights happen. Um, that's a great place. And I'm going to tell you another place that's recent, and we just were referencing it. I love the venue in Minnesota. Um uh, I forgot the name. The, is it the Armory? I think the Armory. Yeah. Like yeah, the Armory. Okay. It's so perfect. It's a lo- it's a really nice. Not- I mean, whenever someplace is called an Armory, you think, "Oh my god, <laughs> it's dingy, awful." It's not. It's a, it's it's perfectly situated for boxing. You know, they fill a place every time, and it's a, it's a great it's a great location. So I like I like going there to do boxing as well, and. Uh, there's a few other, been others over the years. You know, there's a lot of places that are fun, but those are a couple. Yeah, Keith Eidek, we had him on a couple of weeks ago, and uh, and he mentioned that it was a it's a great venue. He said there was some aromatic, shall we say, herbal scents coming from. Yeah, there. that that's another plus to me. <laughs> you know, I, I I actually thought my commentary was exceptionally good that night, uh, but then I would be the last one to know, wouldn't I? <laughs> Um, so this will be, I believe, Showtime's 23rd card of the year, if you include show boxes and pay-per-views and SCBs. 
any favorite nights or fights to look back on over the last yeah this year months? yeah there are um i mentioned one before uh sebastian fundora and erickson lubin that was uh really really amazing uh you know the jermel charlo and castano in their uh second fight was an extraordinary evening, yeah. um, made even more interesting by the long delay prior to the main event, uh, I guess, courtesy of Castaño. So we had to fill like about 35 minutes on the air. I was just getting ready to, by the time they were run, were going in, Morrow and I were just about ready. We were down to foreign policy as a topic to talk <laughs> about, which thankfully we didn't get to uh, for the world at large. And um, so that was a great night also. I, I tell you the fight, it, one of my favorite fights of the year was Alberto Pueo and, um, oh God, I just forgot his uh, opponent's name. Uh, Akhmedov. Akhmedov, thank you very much. Yes, who is a terrific fighter. And by the way, could have gotten the decision in that fight. It was that close. Um, and... It, and it and one of the reasons I like it too is it's in my what is now my favorite weight division 140 pounds. I think there are so many great fighters in that division, and you could you could name 15 fighters and toss them into a you know their names in a, a cap and pick out two and, and you'd you'd be you'd end up with a good fight. So that was a special night. Of course, the upset by Hector Garcia of Colbert. Yeah. Right was a big one and the upset uh by Maxio of Gary of Gary Russell that we had at the beginning of the year. Uh so we started out the year with these two giant upsets that were you know very very big and then we had a lot of good fights also uh you know as we continued. So there were a lot of nights this year that were were a lot of fun. Going back to that Charlo Castaño situation do you enjoy having to vamp? I mean, obviously, there's just a tremendous amount of pressure. But when you're like, God, we've got to talk about something for 35 minutes. Do you actually do you like do you get the adrenaline running? Do you like it? I mean, you're so used to it. Well, now. You know, yeah, it's interesting. I, I like it when it's a showtime kind of broadcast, because what happens is you do have to. I mean, like Marl and I had to do on camera stuff and we had to do a bunch of stuff. But. But there's other elements that they cost in now. The the dangerous and the div really and, and and you still have to be on your toes and you do enjoy it because now you're you know you there's this challenge of trying to be interesting and coming up with something different, especially after you've given so much information already on the broadcast. The times when it's not good is if you're on a broadcast where there's not a lot of elements, uh, mm -hmm. they're not prepared. Um, you know, and you now you're just literally in front of a camera talking for 20 minutes, you know, that's then you're really kind of stuck. But yes, I, that's a very good question, because when you're faced with a challenge, it's it is fun in a way to try and be interesting. And it's funny about that you're talking about more and I were talking about this after because we came up with some stuff that we had never even discussed with each other prior <laughs> to. Uh, that surprised each other. You know, I went back to about another fight where there was a delay and he did something else. So it was kind of fun. Um, all right. So so you talked about some of the, the great fights that were on Showtime this year. Um, we have also had some disappointments in terms of fights that haven't been made. And the biggest, obviously, was the breakdown yeah. in negotiations between Terrence Crawford and Errol right. Spence. Would you say that was the low light of the boxing year? And, and do you harbor any hope of it being resurrected in 2023? Yeah, boxing in 2022 is fascinating because for seven months, everybody was heralding it as one of the one of the really good I mean, we've had good years in recent years in boxing, yeah. in my opinion, uh, in terms of the product uh, that's been given out there. Um, but they were saying, oh, my God, after seven months, this is really a good year. And of course, we we're looking forward to a bunch of good fights. That was one of them that we thought was going to happen. And then we had these like that fight not happening. Uh, Usyk and Fury uh, wasn't it Usyk and Fury that kind of right. went south. Um, or and and, then and Fury Joshua, Fury and Joshua as well, trying kinda, to be yeah. made. Uh, they thought that was going to happen, and there were a couple other fights. And this one was the the poster kid for that. And so we had that two or three month period where then everybody said, "Well, boxing's you know it's a disaster." Two thousand twenty two. You know, well somewhere in between is the truth. But but yes, it was very disappointing. Um, 
I still harbor some hopes that it can happen. I don't have any special knowledge that leads me to believe that, uh, other than the fact that I just think at some point, it seems like they're both going to decide they need to do it. Now, then will it be doable? And will it be too late? And we, you know, all those other questions that you ask yourself. But yeah, that was, um, boxing always has one of those fights that that is the one that the uh, the mainstream sports media and casual fans look at and say, well, that fight's not being made, so boxing's not making any good fights. Right. And it it hangs over the sport like yeah. like a, like you know uh, some kind of a bad dream and uh, and this was this is the current fight in boxing yeah. uh, so I hope it gets made you know people want to see it uh, and I you know I don't know if you're like me I am just about totally over people fighting on Twitter and not fighting in the ring yes. I mean <laughs> honestly it's like you know, it's drives you crazy. I, well, uh, I think I think we're all closer to being over Twitter, period, than we've ever been. Well, that, yeah, yes. that's a whole nother story. But yes, <laughs> let's say social media fighting. On social media. <laughs> yeah, right. But, yes. Yeah. So, you know, you want you want to see them, you know, get in the ring. And we're hopeful that one of the battles uh, that was we're all hoping to see uh, Ryan Garcia and Gervonta Davis, which is agreed upon. Right. But. But I'll tell you what, Javante Davis has a handful on January 7th with Hector Garcia. Yes. I don't know who Ryan Garcia is going to fight. I know they were talking about Jojo Diaz or somebody. But I'll tell you what, even though Garcia is coming up a weight class, he is not an easy opponent for Javante Davis. Indeed. Um, so the Hall of Fame is going to be announcing its new class in the coming mm-hmm. week. Um, and we've kind of got this backlog of of. A-list stars kind of out the way. And this is probably the year for maybe some folks who've been waiting for a chance to get in. Um, Eric and I have really been banging the drum for Rafa Marquez to get in. Uh, yeah, we're not yeah, super choice, confident. Yeah. Um, you've called a lot of his fights, including the, the series with Israel Vasquez. Do you agree with us? It sounds like you do, that Rafa's Hall of Fame worthy. And, and is there anybody else you'd like to see get in? Yeah, he is definitely Hall of Fame worthy. Um, and I'm trying to think now, who, I'm trying to think of who I vote for every year that doesn't get in. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm a bad, I, my track record of being with the people that get in seems like it's not so good. I My, yeah. my ballot doesn't always look like, the ones that are the ones that are given in, but Marquez is a perfect example of uh, of a fighter who should be in there. You know, I think he's um, uh, he definitely you know deserves to be in, and uh, you know he's he's probably he would probably be at the top of the list of those people. Yeah, and I guess the Kieran and I were having a conversation a couple of weeks ago about who we saying who we actually voted for this year, but also who we thought was most likely to get in. And we were kind of landing on Tim Bradley and Carl Frotch that this probably being their year. They both fought on Showtime. Uh, plenty yeah, are Carl, they guys? I, yeah, Carl Frotch most assuredly uh, needs to go in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. He, I was with Abner Morris the other day or the last fight. We were chatting and. During the same time when Abner was fighting what I consider to be one of the most difficult schedules over about a two and a half year, three year period, it was at the same time Carl Frotz was also fighting the most difficult <laughs> schedule that I had seen anyone fight since the old days, right? right? Since the 80s when we had guys fighting, you know, champions five times a year or whatever. But but it, he really fought, a, a, you know, a, a tough schedule. And because of that, you know, I know he had a couple losses, but I, you know, I, I think Carl Frotz deserves to be in the hall of fame. Yeah. All right. Well, final question, Al, and it's a simple one. Uh, you've already maybe given some of the possible answers that here, but uh, let's, let's uh, open it up here. What are the top items on your wish list for the sport for 2023? Okay. Well, um, Spence Crawford clearly is one. Um, Usyk and uh, Fury, I think it's really an important fight if they can make that fight because the heavyweight division has given us excitement again. And I think that's, you know, that's an important fight. There's no question about that. And I want to see in the 140 pound division, which I alluded to earlier, 
they've been making pretty good matches. Let's see them continue in that weight class. Cause I think that could, that is going to really, you know, push the sport uh, a great deal uh, because I think there's going to be a series of great matches that can be made uh, there. And um, the, on a broader scale, I mean, what I'd like to see is continuation of fights like Michelle Rivera and Frank Martin, mm-hmm. where we get the top contenders fighting each other there. They have, you know, it's made worthwhile by promoters and platforms and whoever else. And we don't punish them for a loss so that they have to go way back at the end of the, the uh, you know, the list. Uh, but that we recognize that they're really good fighters, especially if they're in exciting fighters. Akhmadov is a perfect example. Um, uh, when he fought Puello, right? He fought this great, great fight, you know, and I hope he gets other opportunities, you know. It's yeah. a, a guy you want to see. So that would be kind of some of the things. And I'm just hoping for, we're hoping for good matches, right? We're hoping for um, for that, hoping for more unification fights, if you can get them, even though yeah. it's so tricky, it's so funny. You get the unification matches, and if somebody becomes a unified champion in all their weight classes, immediately yeah. one organization is going to script yeah. them, or they, or even not even so nefarious, they simply can't defend against the top contenders of each one. You yeah. can only be one person and fight at one time. So, And now people don't... Now, in the old days, here's what used to happen, too, though, when you unified, you could... You fought three or four times a year. So you would defend against one guy. And then the other guy would be held off with maybe some money. And then you'd get to him. And then you'd get to the other guy. It doesn't happen now because guys may fight twice a year. So if they defend against, you know, one of their their titles, they're not going to get to the other guy until a year later. So the, the organizations aren't willing to go with them that long. I don't see why everyone can't just be like 1975 George Foreman and fight five guys five in one in night. night. <laughs> what, uh, you know, exactly. Where, where, where are those days now when, uh, when, when we have somebody fighting five people at one time? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll never forget watching. I wasn't even in boxing then. I, you know, I was just a fan. And um, I'll never forget watching that. And I thought to myself, wow, this is crazy. And then, you know, later on, I got to know George, you know, and I, I, I him about that and he said you know he said it just seemed like a really good idea at the time <laughs> hey he won all five so i guess it, there you go. it went so, okay you know, yeah. it, it was just as nutty as it was it, i guess it worked for him yeah. right. <laughs> hey al thank you as always it's been a delight as it always is thank you so much for joining us and uh Thanks for a great 2022 and here's to a great 2023. Yeah, yeah. I'm really, we're really looking forward to it. We got a nice uh, group of fights early on. We can tell with, the, you know, Garcia and uh, uh, Davis. And we're going to have Tim Zhu and uh, Jamel Charlo uh, right. pretty much for sure. And uh, uh, and other fights down the pipeline. So looking forward to it. I, you know, I enjoy doing this. And uh, it's great to visit with you guys. And uh, I'll look forward to the next time. You bet. Absolutely. Thanks for classing Thanks, us up Al. again. Thanks very much, as always, to Al. Uh, we should know he slightly misspoke there when he initially said he bet on Holmes Cooney, whereas he meant Foreman Cooney, of course. Right. Um, not that I'm one to point out people misspeaking on this podcast. Um, last week, my first guess in response to your fight game clues was Foreman Holmes. A fight that never <laughs> but, uh, So you're, you're calling that misspeaking? Sure. Okay. You gave me that out. You gave me that out last week, actually, and I should have taken it. You said, <laughs> well, that didn't happen unless you were misspeaking, and I should have done that. But no, there you go. <laughs> anyway, but hey, talking of the fight game, let's mm-hmm. segue into another round of that, shall we? Yes. Um, We're still feeling our way into the segment a little bit. So thanks to those of you who gave us some feedback. We weren't sure... Um, whether the questions so far were at the right degree of difficulty. We have had a bit of feedback that maybe they've been a bit too hard. So here's what we'll do starting this week. The first three questions will be of similar levels of difficulty to the fat first couple of weeks. But we're also going to add a fourth and fifth question that should make it much easier to play along and for either of us or for you guys listening to get the right answer. Um, so with that said, it is my time to come up with the fight for you, Eric, to guess and yep. for you at home to guess. So here we go. Um, for the winner, it was the start of a lengthy title reign that saw him sail into the Hall of Fame. Okay. The winner started a lengthy title reign that saw him sail into the Hall of Fame. Yes. Um, trying to think of lengthy title reigns as I throw a random guess out there. 
I can't imagine this is the fight that you would choose, but it's the first lengthy title reign for a for for a surefire Hall of Famer that I am thinking of, so I will go with Bernard Hopkins winning his first title uh, against Segundo Mer- Mercado. But I highly doubt that's your your pick for the fight game. That would have been a good one, actually. That's, that's... I feel like that's a maybe a little less major than the level Perhaps. of fights that we've sort of been aiming for so far, which is why I didn't imagine it was the correct answer. But okay. Perhaps, but no, but a good one. Yeah, very good one. Um, but no, okay. uh, the fight was one-sided. And quite brief. One-sided and quite brief. Okay, so we're talking a quick knockout for a hall, easy Hall of Famer. Easy that, Hall of Famer. That started a lengthy title reign. Um, so I'm like thinking like, you know, when Joe Lewis, he obviously had a lengthy title reign. When he won his title uh, from, from uh, Braddock. That was who he beat to win the title, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, that was not a a quick, a brief fight. So it wouldn't be someone like him. Uh, so like an easy all-time great who started his... This is this is the tradition now in this game is the second clue, you hem and haw a bit, and then you can't even come up with a good guess <laughs> in a reasonable span of time. So I right. I think I, sh- I think I shall pass at this point uh, w- rather than throwing a random guess out there and uh, let you... Uh, now, so so it's funny. Here's one that would sort of fit this uh, is Tyson Burbick again. If you're giving me Tyson Burbick again, <laughs> that would be quite a twist. Uh, every week it's going to be Tyson Burbick. <laughs> but no, I will pass on a guess here and let you give me the third clue. And here's how you know it was not Tyson Burbick. Uh, both boxes were southpaws. Ooh, both southpaws. Okay. Huh. So... Did Pernell Whitaker have a lengthy title reign that started with an unlikely that he started one with a uh, a quick knockout against a fellow southpaw? Right. Um, trying to th- oh, could be Manny Pacquiao. Did he have a particularly lengthy title reign that started against a southpaw? I don't recall Ledwaba being a southpaw, and I don't know that I would call that a lengthy title reign. He certainly division hopped a lot. Other great southpaws. Is Marvin Hagler considered a southpaw? Um, maybe mm-hmm. so, in which mm-hmm. case that would make the answer to this mm-hmm. Marvin Hagler, Alan Minter. Have I got it? Ding, ding, All ding. All right. <laughs> we the, didn't need you, the extra two clues. If you want to know what the other two easy ones were going I do. And, you know, and, and, and now I'm even wondering whether I should, like, in post-production bleep my answer so that you know what no i I won't everyone will just know that i got there but in the future if any if either of us get it on like the first clue i can like bleep out the answer and let people hear the other Uh, clues and then but but in this case i got it after three so what yeah what were the fourth and fifth clues uh it took place in london in 1980 okay i think i i think had i had it not occurred to me after three had had Hagler not popped into mind I think by I think by that's a good number four clue that sh- makes it not a total gimme but pretty obvious to someone who knows boxing so okay and number five is it ended with beer lots and lots of beer. <laughs> okay yeah so that's and and yeah that's that's a dead giveaway unless you just don't really know much anything about that era of boxing in which case you might still be stumped but if you uh, know anything about uh, that fight you know that it ended, ended with lots and lots of beer yeah yeah. There you go. Well done. Ah, thank you. All right. Finally have a we finally have a win among the two of us within yeah. three clues. But uh but that w- that was a good one and those were good clues that I think we remain on the right level of difficulty with each uh, progressive clue I would say so far. There you go. Well, we're entertaining each other. That's the important thing. <laughs> and f- based on the Twitter reaction, we're I entertaining so. our listeners. Yes, exactly. All right. Let's look ahead to, to next weekend's fights. There are a few cards of various degrees of importance scattered around the globe in Flemington, Australia. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Flemington, that is not Australia. Uh, 49-year-old, 49-year-old Sam Solomon. Wow. I know, right? We'll be lacing them up for the 70th time as a pro as he takes on Joel Camilleri. In Seoul, South Korea, 43-year-old Manny Pacquiao faces DKU in an eight-round exhibition. In Belfast, Michael Conlon continues his comeback from his loss to Lee Wood earlier this year as he faces fellow featherweight Kareem Guerfi over 10 rounds across the Irish Sea and Leeds, England. Josh Warrington defends his featherweight belt against Luis Lopez. But the two biggest cards of the weekend are in these here United States of America. Uh, We begin in the mecca of boxing, Madison Square Garden, New York, 
where Teofimo Lopez enters the ring for the second time since losing his lightweight championship to George Cambosis Jr. last year as he takes on Sandor Martin, conqueror of Mikey Garcia. Uh, he faces him over 10 rounds at 140 pounds. It's a card that's stacked with some of Top Rank's best young boxers. Jared Anderson takes on veteran Jerry Forrest at heavyweight. Sander Zayas meets Alexis Salazar over eight rounds at 154 pounds. And Kishan Davis faces veteran Juan Carlos Burgos in a lightweight eight-rounder. Eric, this feels like a potentially very good card that could nonetheless devolve into four one-sided beatdowns. What is your level of expectation, and in particular of the main event? Yeah, I think four one-sided beatdowns is a favorite to prove an accurate description here. Um, now, as we've discussed, this card is in a coveted TV time slot. It's on ESPN immediately after the Heisman Trophy presentation. That is a great lead-in for catching some mainstream fans who hardly ever watch boxing. Um, I did the ringside scoring for an Errol Spence fight on NBC in 2016 that came right after the U.S. men's basketball team's Olympic gold medal game, and it did huge ratings pretty much just because people left their TVs on. I, I even had a couple of non-boxing friends reach out, hey, I just heard you on TV. Hmm. Um, similar thing here. College football fans will leave their TVs on, whether totally unintentionally or semi-intentionally. Um, I wish that Top Rank and ESPN could give that sizable audience a great fight or two, but they went a different direction, a decent main event featuring one of their young stars and showcase fights for three potential future stars. It'd be great for the sport if you could get a pay-per-view main event worthy fight in this slot. You know, if it could have been, say, Teofimo Lopez against Devin Haney. But, you know, putting that on ESPN wouldn't be the way to maximize right. earnings for that fight, even if it might actually maximize the long-term earning power of all involved. So I get it. This card makes a lot of sense in this spot. This is what we're getting. Lopez versus original opponent Sniper Pedraza. That had a tiny bit more sizzle to it, but Pedraza drops out. Martin steps in, and he's fine. He isn't the most exciting fighter to watch. I really think the only way he can win here is if Lopez has another night like the Cambosis fight where he isn't anywhere near his best. So th this should be a convincing win for Teofimo, and hopefully for his sake, he can give fans a highlight reel knockout. And that's really the goal of all the undercard fighters, too. Uh, you know, that, that phrase you sometimes hear, just win this one. You can look good mm. next time. It doesn't apply as much here. This is the night when looking good is almost as important as winning. Uh, Big Baby Anderson is the best American heavyweight prospect. Jerry Forrest hasn't been knocked out in nine years. Maybe Anderson can do it. Uh, Zayas looks like the real deal to me. Salazar, maybe a slight step up for him, but I, I see Zayas winning in style. And Olympian Keyshawn Davis is maybe taking the biggest leap up of these guys, but Burgos probably doesn't have a lot left. So anyway, the whole card is designed as one giant showcase. I'm looking forward to it, but I'm not expecting to see much two-way action. Uh, meanwhile, on the same night in Omaha, Nebraska, we get the fight that most boxing fans wish wasn't taking place. Uh, Terrence Crawford, one of the top fighters in the world, pound for pound for several years now, is facing David Avanesian. Kieran, we know who Avanesian isn't. He isn't Errol Spence. Uh, but who is he? How legitimate of a challenger to Crawford is he? And is there any way he can pull off the upset? So Avanesian actually isn't terrible. He, he's the European champion. He's got recent KO wins over Liam Taylor and Josh Kelly. A few years back, he scored a decision win over what was left of Shane Mosley. But when he's really stepped up, he, he has fallen short. He lost a decision to Lamont Peterson in 2017. He was stopped by Egegis Kavalowskis the year after that. He's technically sound without being exceptional. He, he boxes behind a high guard. He's nominally orthodox, but slightly unconventionally so. He, he comes forward in fairly straight lines. He squares up. He can throw right or left leads. Um, he isn't very tall. He likes to work inside. He's strong. He's got good, short power punches. But he isn't fast. He lost probably the first four rounds against Kelly, who was slicker and faster and outboxing him on the outside. But he kept bringing the pressure. And once he was able to get that distance he wanted... He forced Kelly to crumble rapidly and dropped him twice and stopped him in the sixth. Kelly actually had a good win on Friday night, and he's getting his career back on track. But he was 10-0-1 when he met Avanesian, and he's no Terence Crawford. And that's the issue. Look, Avanesian is a perfectly serviceable main event opponent for most fighters or a co-main opponent. He's probably not the worst challenger Crawford has ever faced. 
But he offers nothing that Bud hasn't already seen. He doesn't have any physical talents or boxing skills that are going to be tough for Crawford to deal with. He doesn't have the ring IQ of Crawford or anything even close to it. He's strong enough that he might be able to take Crawford deep into the fight, but he's slow and conventional enough that Bud, possibly looking to make a point to his critics, will quite possibly look to take him apart early and stop him viciously in the, in the first half of the contest. Never say never in boxing. There's always some way a fighter can win, but the likelihood of an upset, while non-zero, is very close to zero. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Time now for the news. And uh, we begin with a news main event just for you, Kieran. Right. Uh, Argentina beat Mexico in the World Cup last week. And afterward, Canelo Alvarez vented furiously on social media, not about the fact that Mexico lost, but because footage from the Argentina dressing room afterward appeared to show the country's star player, Lionel Messi, kicking a Mexican shirt that was on the floor in front of him. Canelo tweeted, quote, Did you see Messi clean the floor with our shirt and flag? He better pray to God that I don't find him. Uh, he then became even more irate in response to a tweet from a fake Messi account on Twitter that purported to show the soccer player poking a Mexican shirt with a stick. Uh, eventually, however, Alvarez realized he had probably gone a little overboard, tweeting... In these last few days, I got carried away by the passion and love I have for my country, and I made some comments that were out of order. I want to apologize to Messi and all the people of Argentina. Every day we learn something new, and this time it was my turn. Uh, Kieran, you're the round ball kicky game person on this <laughs> podcast. I uh, want to explain what this was all about. Uh, but remember that this is a boxing podcast, not a soccer podcast. So if you drone on too long or start talking too much about soccer, I will jump in and cut you off. With too long being defined as more than about 10 seconds, probably, <laughs> knowing you. I'll give you, I'll give you 20. All right. <laughs> well, you know, look, I guess this is basically just example number of what? 75,478,000 of why it's always good to take a deep breath and count to 100 before tweeting. Yes. Um, responding with son of a bitch and an angry emoji to a very obviously fake messy account that was posted seemingly intentionally to provoke him. Wasn't a great look. Um, he did get a little out of control. Um, Sergio Aguero, who's a very famous recently uh, retired Argentine player, criticized him. Canelo sent him a voicemail over WhatsApp, basically calling him an asshole. Um, but, you know, the thing is, Messi is widely regarded not only as one of the very best to ever play the sport. Probably even you know that, actually, I would think. I, I was uh, familiar with the name and okay. uh, had a sense that he was uh, among the greats, yes. But he's also considered a very nice guy and very respectful. All that happened, he was taking off his boots. There happened to be a Mexican jersey on the floor because it's a tradition with big soccer games that afterwards the players from different sides swap shirts. They collect each other's shirts, right? It's kind of like this thing of honor to have somebody's shirt. And um, the shirt was <laughs> that he got was obviously dirty and sweaty. It just happened to be on the floor. He just taken his boots off and... Right. There you go. It was all a bit embarrassing, really. I suspect Canelo is probably a bit embarrassed by it all. He's always done a good job of conveying this kind of being in control of things kind of demeanor. But yeah, no, he just just turned into just like another an, another idiot on Twitter. So <laughs> that's a bit, bit disappointing. But hey, he loves his country. So that's, that's, that's that. But yeah. you know what, Canelo, like like friends of mine used to say, every day is a school day. There you go. And you know what? That went well over 20 seconds, but it, you kept it interesting enough, so I let it go. I was tempted to start chanting your name to the tune of Seven Nation Army at some point in the middle of that, but uh, but uh, you, you, you kept my interest. We're okay. Okay. And I mentioned Canelo enough to keep it relevant, so <laughs> right. there you go. Um, the rest of the news is somewhat more serious, and some of it is very good. In that very good news category, Idas Yebosinoli has left hospital after being placed in a medically induced coma following his loss to David Morrell. In a video posted to social media, I saw uh, Dan Canobio posted it. Yeah. Um, he said, uh, apparently he was speaking Russian, but uh, apparently he said that he wants to continue to fight, which, spoiler alert, he almost certainly won't ever get the chance to do again. Certainly not in a, in a country with a, with a strong commission, that's for sure. Um, Jake Donovan of Boxing Scene reports that Luis Cadiz Martinez, the co-defendant along with former contender Felix Verdejo, pled guilty to charges of carjacking and murder in the death of Keisha Marlon Rodriguez and faces up to 30 years in prison. Verdejo's trial is set for February. He faces up to 99 years on each of the different charges in front of him. Uh, the WBC, and the only time we ever mention an alphabet group is when they're in trouble, so you know that something <laughs> right. good's coming up, posted video of an interview with retired referee Carlos Padilla. 
in part of which Padilla openly admitted to helping his countryman Manny Pacquiao win a, bout, win a bout against Nedal Hussein in 2000. Following an outcry, the WBC removed the video and issued a statement from Padilla's daughter, which essentially just said, my father is old and English is his second language. Um, and a couple of matchups to report, or in fact not report. Um, F.A. Ajagba is set to face Oscar Rivas in a heavyweight contest at Turning Stone Resort and Casino on January 14th. And Dan Rayfield reports that the mysterious case of the incredibly shrinking career of Jaime Munguia continues apace, with Munguia having reportedly turned down a mandatory title shot against Janabek Alim Kanoli. Uh, Eric, which of the above items excites, enervates, enrages, or otherwise motivates you to comment? I'll start with Eidos. Um, hard for anything in boxing to give you more extreme mixed emotions than that brief video. Yeah. The highest of emotional highs to see and hear him speaking seemingly clearly, coherently, just a few weeks after we all wondered if he would make any kind of recovery at all, if he would even survive this. How incredibly uplifting that he was treated quickly and effectively and, and is now walking and talking. But how depressing to learn, according to the translators at least, that he wants to fight again. You know, I don't blame him for wanting to, sure. um, but I sure hope nobody around him lets it go beyond talking about it. I, I mean, you know, he's been a fighter all his life. He doesn't know anything else. I get why he's currently thinking this way and feeling this way, but I pray he never fights again or even spars in the gym again. Um, as for the other stuff, nothing to say about the Verdejo situation, really. Um, I like Ajagba versus Rivas, actually. I think that's a good fight between second-tier heavyweights. Not easy to pick a winner, though I... I think I slightly favor Rivas. Munguia, maybe he has another opponent in mind, uh, almost lined up. I don't know. If he has no good options and he turned down Alim Kanluli, I would ask, what the hell is he doing in this sport at this point? Uh, mm -hmm. But maybe behind the scenes, he's close to a Golovkin fight or something, in which mm -hmm. case, okay, I get it. Turn down Janabek and, and, and make your ultimate risk-reward fight. Um, saving Carlos Padilla for last here. This is interesting. Um I watched the grainy video of the fight, which mm -hmm. I remember reading about at the time, but I'd never seen this before. Um, off topic. Wow, was Manny's technique terrible at oh the time. God. He was so raw. Uh, he was a vicious offensive fighter, but so raw. Um, as for Padilla's refereeing, I'm inclined to go with the daughter. He's, mm. he's old and English is his second language. Let's not take him too literally. When Pacquiao went down in round four, it was a slightly slow count. But I've seen worse, and it's not like he barely beat the count. He was up with a couple of ticks to spare. Hard to know about the other stuff Padilla talked about. Was the cut that ended the fight caused by a butt, and he ruled it a punch? I couldn't tell. Was he trying to help Manny win? Maybe. If so, that is shameful. Um, but I, I just can't take him at his word here, an 88-year-old man talking in his mm -hmm. second language. Bad or corrupt refereeing has undoubtedly changed the trajectory of more than a few boxing careers. I can't say definitively if Nedal Hussein got screwed that way. I will say Padilla last refereed a fight in 2000. This was his third to last bout as a referee, and he last judged a fight in 2001. So it's not a case of, you know, now that he said this, get him out of the sport. He's been out of the sport. <laughs> uh, but right. yeah, I just have no idea whether he was speaking the truth or if this was an 88-year-old man not quite saying what he meant or maybe not even having a clue what he was saying. And to be fair, memories can mess you up a little bit. You can create yep. your own narrative in your head and then that becomes established. I could certainly see him, you know, talking to friends after retirement going, oh, well, you know, I, uh, I refereed a Manny Pacquiao fight before he was a big deal. And if it hadn't been for me, he might never have been a big deal kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. Before you know it, that's the truth <laughs> in your head. So, yep. so maybe, right? Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, you know, it's a, it's a long shot that that's exactly what happened, but it's sure. that, there are like scenarios like that out there that uh, only Carlos Padilla knows, uh, and and maybe even Carlos Padilla doesn't know anymore <laughs> quite, quite what happened that night. Yep, yep. All right, let's uh, wrap this sucker up with the reveal of your next top okay. five challenge. Uh, and this assignment is frankly, pretty predictable out of me. Uh, if you've paid attention the last two years to the types of assignments I like to give and the way I like to peg them when possible to something topical, you may even possibly be able to guess the assignment. Uh, we just had a couple of trilogy fights, one of which was quite good. But was Estrada Chocolatito 3 one of the all-time top five chapter threes in a series? 
That's what you'll tell us next week, Kieran. Oh, uh, nice. Simple as that. Count down the top five third fights in a series. And to be clear, the series can be more than three fights long. So, gotcha. so to burn an example that will not make your list, Pacquiao Marquez 3, even though they fought four times, Pacquiao Marquez 3 would be eligible. But right. it was the least great fight of the four by a mile. I, was gonna pick I can't imagine. One. <laughs> oh, well, all right, you still can. Uh, I'll <laughs> criticize your list quite a bit if you do. Uh, but it, it is eligible. But So that's it. Straightforward assignment. Look over the great rivalries in history oh, and count down the top third fights. I, I bet you have at least two or three of your top five springing right to mind already. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Um... Yeah, there's a lot to choose from there. That's the only problem is going to be that there are going to be a lot to choose from. So yeah. that's good. And, that, and, I, and I like the way you phrase that because quite often, not always, but quite often the chapter three is not the best. Right. Um, but that doesn't matter for the purposes of this. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, all right. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing what you come up with next week. Very well. All right. Assuming I managed to clamber off my deathbed. <laughs> deathbed? Come on, that's a little deathbed. strong, Karen. Look, it's a very serious case of man flu or something. <laughs> Take some more NyQuil. Yeah. <laughs> I've been drinking it all through this podcast, can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Oh, Kieran Mulvaney. <laughs> Oh, Definitely I, time to wrap it up. Yeah. Right. I, had, I had to do it one time before you were done. Go, go on with nice, the outro. Nice callback to the beginning of the Thank show. you. Uh, we will be back next week with looks at Lopez Martin and Crawford Abenician and a look ahead to the final Showtime Championship Boxing Card of the Year. Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs>